Welcome to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast, where we share tips, information, and success stories about a revolutionary treatment for alcohol use disorder called the Sinclair Method, or TSM. TSM can help most people reduce rather than abstain from alcohol by addressing the root cause of problem drinking, which is inside the brain. I'm your host, Katie Lane, Sinclair Method success story and co-founder of Thrive Alcohol Recovery, where we help you find freedom from problem drinking using this approach so that you can live your best life. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everybody, it's Katie with Embody Daily, and today I'm here with Ashley. Ashley is a fellow TSMer um, who we actually just connected with each other, and you so graciously accepted my offer to be interviewed about your experience. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Awesome. Um, so I guess uh, just to begin with, um, I guess can we start with you telling us when you started on the Sinclair Method and how long you've been practicing the method? I started Sinclair Method May fifth of twenty seventeen. Okay. So I'm coming up on my two-year mark. Awesome. So you have some experience and perspective under your belt that you can definitely speak to today. I hope so. <laughs> so um, let's get started with, um, can you just tell me and tell us a little bit about your history with drinking and alcohol? And when was it that you noticed um, it was starting to become an issue? Um, I think as far back as I can remember, I always associated drinking um, as being cool. Um, the, the first experience that I can think back to, I invited this guy that I barely knew, um, but I knew he was kind of like a bad boy type from my school bus. I invited him over to drink some beers. That was something that I regularly did. And I had never even sipped beer at that point. So we came over, we hid behind my grandmother's car, stole a couple of her beers, he's drinking his and I'm making excuses why I'm not drinking mine. And then when he wasn't looking, I poured it out. And in hindsight, that, 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 that process, that wanting to be a part of, and that carried over into high school because I remember high school parties kind of creeping off and pouring out my beer that I was drinking then. Wow. And then I wanted to be a part of, but it's almost like maybe I subconsciously knew that it w- I was playing with fire from the beginning. Wow. That resembles a lot of my experience too. Like I really didn't like drinking for a long time and it was just to kind of fit in until it got its hooks in me. So That's, at what uh, point, um, it, yeah. It seems to be a common thread. You know, you mentioned when did I be- see it becoming an issue? Um, you know, I, I think the same need to be accepted socially translated into I was always very awkward socially so I I gravitated towards the people who were easiest to hang out with and that seemed like it was always that that fringe drug alcohol crowd Um, so I started getting into trouble really early on in life with the law and that eventually led to me at 18 19 I went to jail for three and a half years. Wow. Three and a half years. Um, my high school sweetheart had a child during that point. Got out, lost contact with her. But it was once I was released and dealing with the probation parole issue and trying to circumvent the drug testing that I really started to lean more heavily on alcohol as opposed to my drug of choice, which was marijuana. Wow. And it, it really started to ramp up at that point. Uh, and even in 2008, when I got off parole, I found that it, it was then that I noticed that it was an issue. Even though I could now smoke marijuana daily again, the alcohol was there in the backseat with me all the time. And it, it was something that just kind of progressively got worse and worse. Wow. So it went on for almost... 10 years like that until you found the Sinclair method? Yes. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of opportunities and jobs and careers and things that I've just destroyed as a result of that. Just being so, um, I 
can't think of the word, but just destructive, unpredictable, unpredictable. Um, and that I'm, you know, I, I have this great job, but self-destructive is a great way to describe it. But it, it definitely didn't seem to be a cognizant choice that I was making. Like it's kind of a screw my life up. I, everything would just be going great. And then I show up for work drunk. And um, in 2015, my girlfriend slash fiance of eight years left me. And although she never said the word specifically, I know that it was a result of just that guy that I would become um, when, when I drank too much. And in my mind, it was her fault because she was pressing those buttons. And, you know, I was cool around my friends drinking, but you, you just know how to press my buttons and make this guy that I don't want to be. Um, so she left. And when she left, um, I hooked back up with my high school sweetheart. She came back into my life, which opened up the potential for fatherhood again and being a family guy. And I told myself, you know, it, well, it's time, you, you know, you, you, it's all, being not being able to be around my daughter because of the life that I was living mm -hmm. always really kind of bothered me inside. I don't know if that was one of the reasons that I was self-medicating, but now like I had everything in front of me, everything that I'd always wanted was there. And we, my, the ex-girlfriend of eight years left me in April. We were getting married in August. I moved to be with her in October and all this time between August and October, I'm still, I'm living alone in a different city. She's coming to visit me almost every weekend, but I'm trying to kind of cut back on my drinking and in my mind, as soon as I moved, that, that was going to be, yeah, I was going to stop the drinking, you know, try to still maintain a little marijuana usage as I yeah. could um, just so that, my children didn't know about it and that didn't turn out to be the case at all so it, it was 2015 to uh, 2016 was a rough time for both of us wow so you had kind of i mean obviously tried to moderate or cut back before getting on the sinclair method so what was that experience like for you to actually get on the Sinclair method or um, trying, just, trying to moderate without? Yeah, trying, like you were saying, you were going to plan to give it up and you couldn't, like, what was that experience like? I would start out really, really gung-ho, just really researching and, you know, whatever it was that I was trying at the time, whether it was AA or mysticism or um, religion, or I even got on this, this method one time that was like really high dosages of vitamins niacin and vitamin c and b and that worked for a short period of time like my cravings dropped probably because my liver was crying in my knee somewhere you know trying to process all this stuff but yes. I, it, it would always be a very short-lived two weeks kind of max thing i'd be sober and that two weeks would come and then that voice would start in my head well you can just have one you should, you know you work in hard you can drink like everybody else and that you know. yep. I think I can relate. I think maybe a lot of people watching can relate as well. So um, then how did you, how did you learn about the Sinclair method? Um, it, 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 it just kind of popped up on a Google search one day. I, I'd probably gotten off of work frustrated with the way things were. I mean, it was a roller coaster life at home between sleeping in my car because my wife kicked me out or whatever. I mean, it, it just got really bad there towards the end um, of that lifestyle for me. Um, um, right around New Year's of 2016, I left, got in an accident. There was a big fight that night. So January of 2017, um, I entered a 90-day treatment program in-house. Um, really gung-ho about it while I was there, you know, got out, stayed sober for a while. And then that, that, that same kind of destructive snowball effect kicked in. So it was, I'd say, um, January of 2017-ish, I, I, roughly, 
that I ran across the um, Claudia's yeah. TED talk and got really gung ho about that. We really researched it. Like I went deep into Pavlov's dog and like I knew I had everything. I had everything. I got all my little facts. I downloaded the video and I talked to my wife and I was like, look, I really like this. She's with me tonight. And we did. She was understandably very skeptical. <laughs> um, I think she was at that point, she was just so tired of having her hopes shattered that that was just another opportunity to have hope shattered. I think, I mean, that documentary is like 58 minutes long. That's a, she fell asleep and rolled over and fell asleep on it because it was just such an outlandish concept yeah. that drinking could lead to extinction of that alcoholism entirely. Mm -hmm. But I found a TSM approved doctor on the uh, C3 website. Luckily, mm -hmm. he was like 15 minutes away from me. Wow. Right? I mean, yes. I've, I've talked to people that have flown across the country yes. to get doctors, and he was right there. Saved the money. He didn't take insurance. It was like 300 bucks to go see him. We went and saw him together, and he, he seemed pretty impressed with the background knowledge that I had on it. And he was very down to earth. He, I think he presented it to my wife in a way that made her have faith in it, which I'm, I'm lucky because she was really my only support system once mm -hmm. we got started on it. And yeah, that's kind of how we got started on it. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So that was almost two years ago now. Um, what has the experience been like so far for you and and even for your wife too if you want to speak to that yeah not not long after we got on it I, I would say what i would consider for pharmacological extinction to have occurred we met a couple on facebook that were going through similar things to us and he was one of those that was about to fly across the country to get the medication they just had a new child and she was very, very skeptical of PSM as well. So my wife really had that that common history with her. Mm -hmm. And she was working with the wife and I was working with the husband. And um, what was your question? No, no, you're 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 answering it. Just what the experience was like for you and your wife even too as you kind of got started on the method oh yeah, yeah. I, the, I was leading up to say that my one of the things i recall my wife telling the wife of the couple was that i know it sounds incredibly crazy of a concept mm -hmm. but if i had to do it again if i had to i would travel the world over to get this medication for my husband um, so that that's where she stands on it for me um i I've been really fortunate in that I know that the process is different for everyone. Mm -hmm. But for me, I don't I, I don't know if my brain was just so tired of rebuilding and destroying and rebuilding and destroying that when I got the naltrexone in my hand, my brain just said, Okay, dude, do what you want with me. Like I'm just gonna lay down and let you do your thing. Like there was no fight. Cool. There was no a couple weeks in my wife. I would sometimes get, um, like we had an agreement from the gate that like, I would only drink at night once the kids were in bed. So, you know, start that about nine o'clock and I would drink and that would be my extinction session. Mm -hmm. But about two weeks in, I was justifying extinction sessions on the way home from work. Mm -hmm. And she, she had a hard time calling me on my BS, but she was like, look, I, you know, I, I know this process is ultimately yours, but it's just really concerning to me. I feel like you're using the medication as an excuse to drink. And I, I, I took that, I processed it, and it seemed like that was the turning point that my mindfulness of the craving and answering it or not answering it really started to play into the method alongside just the method itself. Like mm -hmm. I started to involve and engage in it. 
mm. not just be a passive, take a pill, not just drink. And that's when the success, that's when I really started to see the success was from that point on. Wow. And so I, two, I, I, I would say two months in, three months in, and again, I need to, I, you know, I, I, I want to stress so much that not everyone has that same extinction time frame. but I was done. Mm. I, I was done. Like it was no longer an issue at all. And I found throwing myself into my work helped a lot. But I, 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 looking back, I have been so very fortunate at how easy it was to get the medication, how quickly it had the desired result. Wow. So I think what you're saying about that mindfulness piece is a place where a lot of people get tripped up because they do rely on the medication just to do all the work. And I wondered if you could speak kind of giving an example of how your mind worked and how you worked through that experience of when you first started to be mindful and kind of what was going on in your head and an experience for you, um, for, for perhaps people to learn from your experience and how they might employ some of these practices or techniques or ways of looking at it that you used for yourself. Okay, cool. Um, I think that I found it ultimately important to me, and I, I know generally it's important to, to target the craving itself. Um, and just for instance, when I would be at work and, you know, everyone's got their rituals and like, there's almost like this American kind of put in a hard day's work and have a cold beer after it's over. Like I was falling into that and, but was that, was that actually a craving or was that me being opportunistic and using that truth of our culture as an excuse to drink? Mm -hmm. So I looked at that and on examination, I, I felt that the answer to that question was actually that it wasn't a craving and it was just my addictive behavior trying to be opportunistic. So I kind of sat back and I said, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong in this assumption. You tell me what it is. So rather than keep my medication on me, which is what I was doing initially, I started to leave it at home. So, I, so if I'm having this craving or um, advantage taking kind of behavior, let's at least give myself the time to get home, then to take the pill, then wait an hour. Like I, I just felt like maybe that that time that I would spend between having the thought, man, a beer would be nice when I got off, to actually getting off, and then buying the beer on the way home, getting home. Would that craving still be there when I got home and it got time for me to take that pill? And I found that more often than not, Yes, I had the craving or I had the thought by the time I got home and life kicked in again. And now I wasn't, I wasn't an employee. I was a father and a husband. That honeydew list, which never gets any shorter, <laughs> kind of kicked in. And the, that I, I didn't crave a drink anymore. And whereas when we first started the process, I didn't, like this was an every night thing. Like I was almost forcing sessions that, okay, first night, drink, take the pill, drink. Second night, take the pill, drink. Kids are in bed, take the pill, drink. But by this point, I was more trying to target rather than force. Mm -hmm. And I started to see, well, wow, the, the medication must be working. Like I'm not thinking about alcohol all the time. And it's only a random thought that crosses my mind as I'm getting off of work. And maybe that's not even a craving. Maybe that's just an addictive personality saying you deserve that buzz, you know? And I, I, I found moving forward from that, that I, I was almost able to gauge craving versus desire. And I think those are actually two very Yes, you did such an excellent job speaking to that, um, hearing from your own experience of making that distinction. I think that's 
really important for a lot of people because it does start to feel more like like you're saying, it's just a thought. It's not really this urge and craving. And when you take time to examine it more, like you are describing that you did, it's amazing how just getting yourself in a different environment can like, oh, the thought's not there anymore. So I, I really appreciate you for speaking to that in such detail that you did. Um, so can you describe what it was like for you drinking on naltrexone? Are, are you still drinking now after two years? We, um, we went out last night. Um, I had some friends from Austin come in um, to play here in New Orleans. So that was, we went out, I had a shot of tequila with my buddy, the drummer, two beers to follow that. I had a pretty healthy buzz going and I didn't feel the need to drink anymore. I'm typically like if me and my wife go out, like she's got yearly Christmas parties and like this summer event she goes to. Typically she'll drink and I don't. Um, last night I drank and she didn't because she was just kind of like, baby, you need to have fun. Just go have fun. Yeah. But it, drinking on naltrexone now is something that I'm not driven to do. But I find that in my line of work, sometimes that restaurant, have some drinks with the clients kind of thing is almost expected. Yeah. And I appreciate naltrexone giving me that option as I approach my career. And, but drinking, I haven't found that, like I don't miss, I don't miss that endorphin rush. It was all I wanted and all I chased before the naltrexone and the Sinclair method, but now drinking is what it is. Yes, there's an end result that you're striving for but it's very clear that it's just a buzz it's just an alleviation from the alcohol and when you start to feel that there's no need to go any further because you're already there you've got what you wanted whereas before that buzz would kick in the endorphins would be released and i was off the races like i could not stop i, I would i would justify another drink until i was on the floor my brain would still be justifying when I can no longer justify. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yes. So I want so to ask. I like, I, you'd ask me how is drinking different? I don't find that it's different in any aspect other than I don't have that, that manic. Oh my God, this is the last time I'm ever going to get to drink. Give me all the booze type mentality anymore. And that was definitely present before, and it's absolutely not present. Hmm. Did you always have a clear kind of off signal when you got started on the Sinclair method and the naltrexone? Because I hear from people who feel like they can drink through the naltrexone and their old tendencies, like you're describing, like, give me all the booze. People will still have that experience even on the naltrexone. And I'm curious if you've had that experience or if not, how do you know when you're done drinking on the naltrexone? I, I think all of us can call back a time before our, our use disorder kind of got the best of us. We knew when to quit drinking. Like there was just a time, I feel like there were, there were two types of drinking back then. There was, I'm like animal house style, like we're just gonna booze it up tonight. We're just gonna get drunk. There was that drinking, and then there was, hey, you want to go have a couple drinks or whatever, and you'd go and you'd have your couple drinks. And that would be it. And then somewhere along that way, that couple of drinks turned into, I don't remember anything from last night. God, did I do something to embarrass myself kind of thing. But now Trexone allowed me the opportunity to experience drinking as I did years ago. Do, do I, is there a clear signal that says, hey, it's time to stop? There obviously is because I stopped, but it's not, it's not so much of a cognizant kind of thing. Like, yeah, if anything, it's a fear of ever going back to that guy mm -hmm. that woke up the next morning not remembering. So if there's an off button for me, it's this doubting voice in the back of my head that says 
eh, are you kind of getting to the point where you might say something stupid? <laughs> and I go on to shut it off at that point. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So um, I know you've spoken a little bit about how your life has changed since going on the Sinclair Method, but can you tell us a bit more about kind of your life before and now and what have been some of the biggest changes through this method as it relates to your drinking and you know often drinking impacts everything in our lives so a lot of other things change as well so i'd just love to hear from you about what this experience has been like sure um before now before now trexone and before the sinclair method um, my life had become building destroying, building and destroying. Um, the three and a half years that I spent in jail for years after and until the Sinclair method, my biggest fear was going back to prison. That was the worst thing that I could imagine. And it just so happened that when I started on the Sinclair method, I was in a transitory point in my life where I had just gotten fired from another job. Um, so as I started the Sinclair Method, I was interviewing. Then I got a job days in. And so as I'm starting the Sinclair Method, I'm starting a new career. And it just kind of continued to build. And I'd say now, I don't even think about jail anymore because that's just not, like I'm not going to do anything to put myself in that position. and. My biggest fear today would be to lose my career. I got, if I woke up tomorrow and it was just gone and I had to start from ground level again, the, the thought of that literally instills fear in me. Um, my name is respected throughout the state. My, my kids before the Sinclair method, um, there was one point where they were in fear of me even though I, I was never physically abusive with them. Just the, the, the yelling and the screaming behind closed doors between my wife and I, mm -hmm. they were very standoffish with me. And if you looked at us now, we're that typical American family and with no, you know, no dark shadows once you close the door. Like I can engage with my children in a way that I couldn't before because I, I feel like my self-confidence in who I have become didn't allow me to positively take a stance on anything with them because I, I don't know, just my pride, my pride in myself and my confidence in myself or through the roof. And I don't even think I knew what that was. Like I, I wore masks before the Sinclair method and now I'm, I'm me. Sinclair Method has allowed me to be me and I'm proud of who I am. People like me. And I, I, I mentioned, I think at the start of this video that self-esteem had always been uh, an, an issue for me and that, that need to be socially accepted, which ended up getting me in trouble. Like I, like I, I found out that I was always that person that I thought I was. I was just self-medicating to the point that that person couldn't thrive. You speak to that so well. Like I can certainly relate exactly what you're saying, especially the masks, like alcohol almost in excess, like required that because it, there was so much shame around it um, and the misuse of it. Absolutely. So I want to go back a little bit because you were saying that um, you threw yourself into your work a lot as kind of like something to do other than drinking. And I know that's something people struggle with when they get to that place where, okay, I'm not craving as much. Now, what do I do? Um, and I've seen people kind of stay in the habit of drinking, like you were talking about, like kind of dissecting, is this a craving or is it just a thought? Um, so do you have any advice or things to speak from your experience about how somebody might, you know, begin to do other things other than drinking when they don't really know what else to do with themselves because they've been in this habit of drinking for so long. 
I would I would just advise that now that the that alcoholic merry-go-round rat race type lifestyle isn't so much an issue and you no longer have to apply the mindfulness that you applied so heavily exhaustingly to your cravings and targeting of those cravings to start to use that mindfulness to get in touch with who you are and who you've been burying for so long. Um, you know, I found out that I'm actually a rather skilled mechanic and I, I had no idea who I was. Like, <laughs> I like writing and, you know, gaming I always did enjoy, but there's a creative side to me that I didn't know existed. And it finding that out was a result of applied mindfulness techniques. But at the same time, well, it was that. It was mindfulness. I was going to say it's just being always open to the possibility of who am I? Because I think, you know, if we're in this boat together, and it's ironic how all our stories are almost identical. Yes. You know, like if if we're here now and my God, this miraculous, crazy method that everyone looks at you and says, do what? Now that it has allowed us the possibility to have our lives back and we start to get that back, how, who am I now? Like, you know, I don't have to stand up in a room anymore and say, my name is Ashley, I'm an alcoholic. So who am I? You know, if I don't have that label, who am I? And the 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 universe is much more obliging to showing you the answer to that question if you just open yourself to listen and seek that. You know, and I, that's a process I feel that we'll be on until the day we die, and that's great because then we might get bored. God forbid, go back to old ways, but life is great. Life is crazy on its own accord, and who's got time for me? <laughs> yeah, you explain that so well, and it's like an uncovering of, of gifts that are within all of us and begging to be expressed, and alcohol just like numbs it, like it prevents it from ever being expressed. So being able to ask yourself, who am I, like, yeah, there's so much to be uncovered. So it's, it's, it's so it's so uh, it's so heartbreaking when you think you know I I spent my time in religion and different ones have different theories and tales, but they all come back to like this Satan being the father of lies and like if 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 there is a Satan walking this earth, he's in a bottle and his name is Jack. Like he that. I don't know. It just that 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 bottle lied to me for so many years and told me that I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. You know, I was the victim. Like everyone else in life had wronged me, and I deserve this drink. And I, I don't know, man. It's just it, it it's so heartbreaking is one way to describe it. And other times it just pisses me off that I wasted so long listening to this voice that. Thank God for this work that I I want to speak on something that I ran across in the groups last night. And I feel that just happenstance, I was lucky in the sense that it was not planned. But my 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 choice was always whiskey. Always. Like I, I had never really been a big beer drinker. And I say it was happenstance, but it it was my wife. Like the the when I introduced this to her, and she was like kind of more than not feeling like this was just an excuse for me to drink, mm -hmm. um, because I had spent a lot of time trying to convince her that look, look, you just don't press the button. Like, oh my God, my beers just don't mess with me. Like 
I can drink like everyone else. She knew that not to be the case. And I think she suspected that maybe I was trying to use this as a segue into that. And just it, from the beginning, it, it was part of our agreement that that drink following the pill would be beer. But it wasn't necessarily planned that way. And I read the book, but like, and I, just that part of it being suggested that we not imbibe in hard spirits and that if we do the, that, that extinction and the TSM actually being as effective as it can be could be somewhat muffled. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be as effective. Wasn't an active thought. It, it wasn't on my radar, but thank God, like it just worked out the way it did that I wasn't taking the pill and drinking whiskey or vodka, or, you know, and because I see that it could be very easy to over drink the pill. And, you know, when you, you know, like when I think of the, that term over drink the pill, like I automatically hearken to this thought, although I never took hand abuse. I've, you know, I, I, I've heard these stories about these guys that take the interviews. So now they're like a bear with their leg in a trap. They want to drink, but it's making them sick. So I guess the sickness doesn't allow you to really enjoy the buzz. So like they would just drink these massive amounts of booze and then get to a point where they were buzzed. So when I think of over drink the pill, I think about that as what that that is that. But I don't think it is. I think if I, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but over drinking the pill is just allowing yourself to, especially with hard spirits, unintentionally more often than not, reach a point where the medicine can't block the endorphins anymore, and then that endorphin kicks back in, and you're like, oh damn, mm-hmm. that's what I wanted. And I see the danger in that. Absolutely, I do. So I, I am just blessed that it, that was not something I had to deal with. But I see how that could be a very dangerous way to approach that. Yeah, and I've actually, over the course of you know the couple of years I've been making videos, I hear from people who you know I they read the book or they know that they shouldn't drink the hard stuff, but they still are um, because it's their drink of choice and they can't imagine drinking something else. And I'm just wondering, you said you were drinking whiskey. Was it easy for you to just start drinking beer all of a sudden, or what might you say to somebody who? can't get off the whiskey or the vodka. Again, that's, that's real. um, Like, I don't know. I feel like it's almost dangerous territory to start hypothesizing on that. Like it's, it's almost like you could say that, well, I was just ready kind of thing, but that's not fair to put that kind of label on someone. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I think my wife, like she, her big thing is, and even the psychiatrist who prescribed the medication to me said, you have to want it. Mm-hmm. I've given this medication to people and they just, I guess they didn't want it and it didn't work for them. But, you know, if, if, if you, if I, were to be starting this all over again, realizing how fortunate I was to find a doctor willing to prescribe it, to have all of these tools at my disposal, the support system that actually exists in you guys and the Sinclair Method Warriors, like everything is there that can allow me to overcome something in a way that the world as a whole doesn't think can be done. All of that, like, get a beer, like, just try it, like, you know, like you, you'll still get the buzz, and it might not be that real quick, intense kind of buzz that you're used to as a as a horror spirits drinker, the one that preferences that. It's but it's just a part of it. If you if you're willing to do everything else right, it's almost you have to view that as part of it. Like if if, if you can. 
that the golden rule is take the pill, wait the hour. But that should be part of the golden rule too. Like you got to make the decision to to switch to beer or wine yeah. or whatever. I think it's I think it's important because that possibility exists. You're six months in, like you're right there, like you're doing so great, and then you just happen to be at a bar and your buddy says, "Hey, you want one more shot?" and you do it, and it it bumps you past that. Not even expecting to do so, not maliciously, but now. You release those endorphins, and I don't know. Are you back to square one? Are you not? Like at the very least, you've put a stumbling block in your way that we don't deserve to have. That. Yeah. I didn't find. You would think I would, but I didn't find that I was being neglected by not being able to have the whiskey that I was used to, and. You know, being an everyday drinker at one point now, I would say for the totality of 2018, I probably drank socially eight times. Let's say eight to ten times. Eight to ten times. And of those eight times, eight to ten, let's say ten. Of those ten times, five of those times were Bloody Marys. Like, I, I like Bloody Marys. So I was drinking hard spirits. But I think by that point, which was roughly a year in, It didn't. That that voice was still there to say, "Hey, you might. You're you're where you need to be." Mm. Ah. So I I don't feel like in the same way that when I was going to AA and I resented the fact that I couldn't drink like everyone else, the 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 requisite that's there that you should start off PSM on a softer level mm-hmm. doesn't always have to be in place. I feel I feel once the method has worked and you've reached that extinction and the decision is yours to do as you have done and just take on full sobriety as a choice or if you want to continue to drink and employ the method in tandem that at some point the option becomes available to you to drink mixed drinks i probably would never say just start taking shots ever again but if you're honest with yourself, I think you would be able to see that you don't. Why try to reach a point that quick? We're not teenagers anymore. We don't have to prove to our buddies that we can drink them under the table. Yeah. Or maybe someone watching this is a teenager and you don't have to prove <laughs> Yeah. Bottomless pit, never going to get you anywhere. Yeah, I can relate to that. I think for me too, because I did like mixed drinks, but I was mostly a wine drinker, but I too loved whiskey and kind of vodka mixed drinks. And the further in I was on the method, I would allow myself to have like one mixed drink that it would be a tall drink and I'd sip it and just have that awareness. But I do feel it's risky when people start this method with their glass of whiskey every night. I'm just like caution, but um, yeah, it's, it's up to the individual and I appreciate you speaking from your experience on that and realizing that you know you can't your experience isn't everything it's your experience but I think hearing from you might plant seeds and others to reflect on their own experience and what may or may not work for them hopefully so that so, it would be my hope that that would be the case you know but I, everyone's journey is their own and it's a beautiful thing that that's the case you know, there are people who've come before us like Claudia and there are other warriors there that you know, just like when we were teenagers and we didn't want to listen to our parents because they don't know anything like I know best. You know, kind of read those guideposts that have been put in place for us that, that we're blessed that that's there and take advantage of. Mm-hmm. What might you say to somebody who might be watching this um, who's considering the Sinclair method for themselves or they're just getting started or they're having troubles with it. Like what might you advise someone who's just in the beginning phases of this method based on what your experience has been? If you're questioning whether it can work, mm-hmm. yes, it, can work. it likely will work. Um, but again, there's a method called a method for a reason and you can't take a 
proven scientific method, try to make it your own. Um, there's leeway there as far as personalizing a method, I think. But a method's a method, and just stick with what's been shown. So I would I would definitely recommend it. What would I tell someone who's just getting started on it? Don't be too hard on yourself. Your brain is a, a unique thing that we all have our own personal traumas that we've been through. And the landscape of my brain is totally different than yours, Katie. And it's likely everyone's is it's like a fingerprint. Don't use the time frame that it that someone else. Don't use their journey as a total indication of what yours should be, and as a as a measuring stick for how well you're doing. Just follow the guidelines, follow them religiously. Never break that golden rule, and your life could totally change. I I, uh, I mentioned earlier I went from a guy who had nothing to having everything to having nothing. And almost finding comfort in that struggle mm -hmm. to there's a there's a road out of that hell that we've lived in for so long. The answer is there, and you know doubting family members I'm sure can be an issue again, the same information that led you to the decision to take on this lifestyle and try this 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 course of action against this disease the same information that led you to that decision just be patient with them and let them make that decision on their own um, but it's there if they want to educate themselves and it's really hard I, I, I see people a lot of times have trouble with gps and doctors wanting to not wanting to prescribe the medicine but it seems like if they'll get out of their own way and hopefully you're not dealing with someone who's just a very egotistical and won't take hard science when it's staring them in the face. Mm -hmm. Those doctors can be swayed to go on and in turn prescribe that medication and your family would be the same way. I would resent them with, with hard hold facts. If this, this could work and this is why, that support will hopefully come if it doesn't yeah strike out alone you know because the, the, the life that we want it's there it can be it can be gained again yeah and guess what like i don't have to go like i have a life now katie like i don't have to like I, yes i was sober and when going to aa and stuff like that and then i was I'm, I'm thankful for that but I never even got to spend any time with my family because I was just from one meeting to another and oh God, there's a big book study and I got to go to that. And then I, you know, I'm working, I'm making money and I'm throwing it in the basket every time and feel guilty if I didn't. Like, it, like you can have a life again. Like the amount of time that I miss from my kids and my wife, just trying to maintain sobriety. Just the time I spend with now is insane. Life, life can totally, totally, totally change, and it will give it a chance to work. Yes. I love that you speak to that because that was a lot of my experience when I was sober. I would be sober and everything would look great, but it was like such an internal conflict and struggle and so much energy pointed toward just not relapsing and staying sober. And it was awful. Like I was like, I'd rather be drinking than try to maintain sobriety. And that's what the biggest gift of the Sinclair method is like, sobriety is amazing with the Sinclair method. It's like life is so beautiful when you're not being met with incessant alcohol cravings or resisting it. So, yeah. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent. Like, you know, with the, the AA and the 12 steps, it's almost like you put this stamp on yourself for the remainder of your life that I'm an alcoholic and this is who I am. And although that's something that, yes, that, that's something that lurks within us. And if at any point 
we choose to stop using a method that has been shown to work and has worked in us, we want to just throw caution to the wind, we can get back to that point. But now Trexone and the Sinclair method allowed us an opportunity to say for the first time, no, I'm, I'm not that. I'm not an alcoholic. It's a, that, that was another rat race that I'm so fortunate to have been able to get off of. And to this day, like I, every now and then I'll be like, man, I'd really like to go to a meeting and just talk to people about, you know, now Trexone. And, but it's, it's so unfortunate that the same big book that tells you that you'll be a lifetime addict and you'll never recover and you can maintain, but you're going to be this for the rest of your life. That very same book says, and I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says science has not achieved this yet, but it may someday achieve this, which is an answer to alcoholism other than just giving your life to a giving your life to that rather than where it should be with your family. Now an answer is out there. A medical science has found that answer. And you walk into an AA meeting and tell them that, oh my God. Like I've done it and I've got the looks. And it's, I almost felt like Frankenstein running away from that meeting <laughs> with the torches, like get out of here. And it's it's sad to see that. Like, wow. I just, it, it's frustrating, you know. I want to get the word out there so bad. Like I, I've done a Craigslist post one time. By like, do you want to stop drinking? But nobody answered it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Working with that family on Facebook that time, that was rewarding. But I'm, I'm happy to have found the groups. I really am. I'm, I'm looking forward to being active. It's cool. Awesome. And I want to go back for a minute to something you were saying earlier about finding comfort in that struggle of building your life up and destroying it again and building it up and struggling again and, and destroying it again. And cause that's something I made a video about recently about being addicted to the struggle. Cause I felt like that was a lot of what perpetuated my alcohol dependence. And I'm just wondering, do you have more to say there on what your experience was like of finding comfort in the struggle? Like how, how do you reflect on that and how you were finding comfort in that struggle? I think it's something we can all relate to, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on I'm that. Gonna to, uh, I'm gonna have to check out that video. It's on your YouTube, right? Yeah, it's, it was like, are we addicted to the struggle or something? I, I think it's I think it's a side effect of everything else being out of control in our lives. That that rebuilding process of reclaiming my life once again is something that we can actually feel as if we're in control. Because it doesn't take that long to get from rock bottom to employed again, getting paycheck, people not looking at me as a total, you know, whatever. It doesn't take long to get from that point to semi-respectable. So it, it doesn't take a lot of work, but it's very rewarding to get to that point. Um, and when everything else, long-term and, everything is kind of out of our control. That's one microcosmic part of our lives, that rebuilding process that we can find ultimate triumph in and success. Take a deep breath and crack a beer. Yeah. Reward myself and start it all over again. Yes. But that, I, think that, I think it's that. It's just not having that control. But that is one thing that that, that we can, you know, and also, you know, I, I, I went through a lot as a child coming up, like there's past trauma there. And, you know, getting to a, a certain point in, in your life and having seen the destruction you've caused in your wake and looking back, it, I feel like it can do one of two things. It, it caused, well, it does do two things. It, it causes just this despair within you because as the souls that we are, like it, it, that, that spirit doesn't want to cause that hurt. And there's a, there's a regret and a sadness that comes along with realizing what we've done. And being able to 
look back on that past trauma also and say, you're why, you're the reason why. Oh, oh, it, it, I hate to use this word, but it's, it's like we allow that to become, we point at that and we say, that's why. And it allows us the justification to pour sorrow and self-pity upon ourselves by indulging in the very thing that continues to cause us that inner turmoil. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that that that's another sign of that that taking comfort in the struggle is that you, you know life continues to be a struggle living that way and you're seeing it all around you but we become very good at blaming others for what we have done and of course our our medication is you that sorrow is more alcohol mm -hmm. which uh, which is allowing us to satisfy a desire that we have anyway so it's almost it's, it's very self-defeating yeah but it's also that the comfort in the struggle is the answer that allows it. The struggle is what allows us to get what we want in the end, that point in our lives, which is that drink. So it's like the more struggle we can create in our lives, the more justification we have to drink. Hey, that turned out pretty good. Wow. <laughs> I put it back on that one. I was getting lost in it, but that, that worked out pretty good. I'm glad this is being recorded. <laughs> That's, yes. Exactly. I can relate. Exactly. You said that so well. It's yeah. fun. Is there anything you're doing else? A great thing with your videos. What's that? I think you're doing a great thing with your videos. Thank you. Yeah. I feel, um, yeah, I'd like you said, you want to get the word out about this and I do too. Cause I know when I first learned about it, there was nobody telling their story and I was like, this is too good to be true, you know, other than Claudia's video. And so I, I hope, to show people and through interviews like this that like there are people telling their success story from this method and i appreciate Absolutely. you coming on the video was great the video of uh, one little pill was was great i mean it set the groundwork for what a lot of us have been able to do in our lives and i'm very thankful for the work that claudia has done me too and there was an aspect to that video where it's like well you know the courts in finland are seeing such great results it it seemed so far removed from our lives here in the States that it almost allowed that doubt to creep in. Like, well, it's working up there, but can it work here? Like, can it work with me or whatever, you know? And I, I think the, the groups and you putting a face to it and us putting ourselves out there to say, hey, this is what I've been through. This worked. These were the steps, the pitfalls that I ran into. Watch out for those. It, it, I just, I, it's my hope that we can continue to grow a supportive community around this. Because mm -hmm. um, my God, who would think? That? Now, one little pill is such a great title for that because it's almost like it pokes fun at itself. But once you come out the other side of this, it's like, wow, who would have thought one little pill? Like, <laughs> it's such a great title. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you were getting ready to ask me did I have anything else yeah just any other words I feel like you do such a good job at articulating your experience in a way that's digestible and I'm just wondering if you have any other words of wisdom or things you've learned or to share before we wrap up the interview I don't think so I think you've done a pretty good job of pulling my, if I had nuggets, you pulled them out. Like you took all my wisdom. So, <laughs> I, I, I think that's it. But um, anybody watching this, come join us in the group. If I find any more, I'll toss them to the ground. Okay, great. Well, thank you so so much, Ashley. I enjoyed this so much. Um, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, and. Um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All right, have a great weekend. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast. 
For additional Sinclair Method resources and support, please check out the information in our show notes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.